Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Future and Innovation Podcast. I'm Nihal Helmi, Knowledge and Communities Manager here at the Center. Our Global Perspectives 2021 hybrid experience was as exciting and inspiring as you'd expect. We gave our communities the opportunity once again to immerse themselves in themes and workshops, designing common strategies to address key trends, challenges, and opportunities of shifting power. We have created these episodes to bring you some of the conversations and panels we experienced during the conference. We hope you find them as insightful and valuable as we did. Welcome everyone. Uh, this is Eva, your moderator again. In this session, we're having a panel discussion and we'll be hearing more about dismantling old power structures and engaging new power actors and definitely building on what we just heard from Jeremy in the uh, keynote uh, opening a couple of minutes ago. The panel discussion will be moderated by Alicia Bagat, futurist and senior strategist with Forum for the Future. So Alicia, it's really great to have you with us today. Uh, and over to you to guide us through the discussion. I'm with you. So I'm so excited um, to be with you all and to facilitate this panel of our wonderful speakers. Um, we'll start with Casey. And Casey Hardin is the General Secretary of the World YWCA and is a testament to the YWCA's mission to create space for young women to be leaders in all their diversities, working together to contribute to gender equality. Um, and Casey, I believe you're based in Switzerland. We are also joined by Rita Paniker, who's the CEO of Butterflies, an NGO in New Delhi, India. Um, she's also a part here as a member of Family for Every Child, which Butterflies is a member of, which is a global alliance of 40 local CSOs from 36 countries across all regions, working on and advocating for child rights with um, child participation as one of the core values. We're also joined by Shannon Page, who's a policy associate working at Peace Direct. She leads Peace Direct's research and advocacy efforts around decolonizing the aid and peace building system and is co-leading efforts on legislation to address an, the over-militarization of US foreign policy, uh, building peace building programs and is a member of the DEI working group there. And I believe Dylan from Peace Direct may also be joining us in the audience so there's another uh, Peace Direct person here to talk to. Um, and as mentioned by Eva, I'm a futurist and strategist. I work on strategic foresight and using futurist tools on, with organizations, mostly companies, around long-term positive change. I also teach at the Parsons School of Design and am passionate around changing the narrative around who the future is for and convene a group around decolonizing the future. So let's get going on our discussion topics. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of run this as a traditional panel somewhat in the beginning, but we saved a big chunk of time for audience questions. Let's kick off and I'll just go through it. So the first kind of question that we have for this panel is how do you challenge powerful privileging forces in the work that you do? So um, why don't we start with Thanks, Alicia. And I, um, I know we have really limited time, so um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretend like this is kind of like speed dating. And I'm gonna go fast and quick. Um, so uh, the Worldwide WCA, um, we are an old institution. We're 160 years old, um, but in 2015, we really recognized that we wanted to continue with our mandate of centering the leadership of young women within in a, in a 
within an intergenerational context. In 2015, the, um, the world population was 7 billion, I think like almost 2 million, uh, two, sorry, 2 billion of that was um, young, young people. And uh, we knew that that was anticipated to be increased about three times by 2035. And we adopted our goal 2035, which is 100 million young women transforming power structures. We identified that that not only um, was relevant for the World YWCA in terms of continuing to do our very critical grassroots, intersectional, community-based and driven work by women leaders, um, but it was also really relevant in time really to take the YWCA story, the YWCA work, the YWCA principles uh, to the larger global women's rights and human rights movement. Um, so fundamentally, right now, our intent, what we hold ourselves accountable to is transforming power structures, including our own. Um, what comes behind that is deep and wide, and I won't go into it, but um, everything we're doing as this global movement in 100 countries with tens of thousands of leaders is centered on the idea of uh, the premise of young women leading and transforming power structures. Thanks so much, Casey. Um, Rita. Uh, as you introduced me, um, Butterflies is a member of Family for Every Child, which is a global alliance of grassroots CSOs, practitioners from 36 countries. This alliance was the outcome of a global North aid agency called Every Child, who disrupted itself and relinquished its power to the local grassroots CSOs. Family was founded by us, the local CSOs, the vision, the mission, the goals and objectives were democratically agreed. The alliance of practitioners are testing new theories of development work with children, families and communities. We continue to build a body of knowledge through our rigorous empirical research, process documentation, evaluation and practice exchange, which supports our advocacy strategies for policy and law reform nationally, regionally and internationally. The change is driven by the local CSOs. The knowledge and experience actually lies with us. The agenda is drawn by us. We have collectively influenced national governments in the area of alternate care for children, such as kinship care in Africa, foster care guidelines and standard operating procedures in India, a multi-country research on sexual violence of boys was undertaken. It was a first global study on this subject. As I see it, the way to challenge the powerful forces is for the local CSOs across the regions to come together to advocate for the rights of the marginalized communities. In a struggle to reclaim our power, we must first organize ourselves. We must take the risks to challenge the large well-endowed INGOs to take our agenda, the local issues and concerns forward and not their agenda. Family Alliance has demonstrated that we can do it. By being an alliance of practitioners, we have realized the international community needs us. We are the frontline practitioners who can with empirical evidence prove that it is our participatory approaches and strategies of working with the marginalized communities that positive societal transformation has taken place. We need to amplify that. Of course, it's not a fair playing ground. Challenging the powerful is difficult. Frustrating, as we know, it is difficult to give up power, but strength lies in numbers. 
There have been occasions when you're invited for a consultation, but marginalized, as it is difficult to listen to the truth, the real voices of the grassroots. The voices from the grassroots articulate real issues, which may not be on the agenda of the powerful or part of their five-year strategic plans for changing the world. The way forward to reclaim power is for the local CSOs and grassroots organizations to organize ourselves, create a body of knowledge that can be used for advocacy with national governments, regional and inter-government fora, and at international level for policy shift, legislation and budget. We should be a part of that process. It is important to realize that funds are important, but all actions do not need funds. We can share resources, knowledge, skills, and collectively advocate and campaign for the rights of the marginalized communities, families, and children. The language of the powerful international forces of shifting power, people's power, participation needs to be challenged. The local CSOs and communities always had power, continues to have it and will have it in the future. The problem is we ourselves have not recognized it. It is paradoxical that one makes all the correct political speeches, but in reality do not subscribe to it. One must not forget it is our work at the grassroots, the people's empowerment that gets amplified by the powerful forces by taking ownership of it, using it to raise funds and continue to hold the power. And we need to fight that. Thank you. Thank you, Rita. Um, over to you, Shannon. Thank you so much. And what a privilege to get to follow Rita. And so as mentioned by Alicia, I work with Pace Direct. We were founded in 2002. And our entire reason for existing is to support and amplify the voices of local peace builders to the international community and to really help shift power and resources to local peace builders and in order to support their local efforts. And so at our core, Peace Direct believes that those who are most affected and most proximate to conflict are the ones who oftentimes have the solutions. And the challenge is then getting those resources to those already undertaking immense and impressive efforts to try and build peace in their own communities. And so really a lot of what our approach is, is a combination of direct support um, to local actors on the front lines. And we also like to experiment with new models of identifying and resourcing local peace building actors. And, you know, I'm on the advocacy team. We like to lead advocacy and research in order to shift policy and practice in favor of, of local efforts. You know, when we're talking about challenging these powerful privileging forces, at the core of what we're talking about is we're talking about recognizing that these forces exist first and foremost, and then meaningfully creating systems that can shift them. And I think that following Rita is the perfect position for me to come in and say these things because there's so many barriers as to meaningfully doing that. As Rita mentioned, there are many times when tokenistically people have voiced an interest in working directly with local communities and local CSOs and have then not meaningfully incorporated them in any leadership efforts. And I think to Casey's point as well, youth in particular tend to be brought in tokenistically toward the end of any initiatives. And so at Peace Direct, we are talking a lot about how can we include youth how can we include women? And then my efforts really talk about, well, some of the barriers that the sector has been reluctant to recognize is 
the racism, both structural and interpersonal, that has been built into the systems of our sector. And so what is a limiting factor in trusting many local communities? It is our preconceived notions of their capacity. And so really challenging that lie that has become so normalized, that's a key element when it comes to shifting power and it comes to really challenging the status quo. Thank you, Shannon. I'm going to uh, kind of condense my next two um, because I think that you all hold kind of a wealth of stories. And as, as pressed as we are for time, I think it could be really, um, I, I always find that stories are what stick in my mind um, about this kind of work. So I would love to know um, kind of a, a, a very abridged version of a story or a case study or kind of a personal anecdote in doing your work in terms of kind of trying to center these voices that are marginalized, that are kind of either tokenized or just not included at all in sort of mainstream um, discussions. Do you, can you share kind of a, a short story anecdote or case study in which um, you sort of centered uh, some of these new power actors in the work that you do? Um, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, so um, I, I have lots of stories I could tell, but I want to center on one because I think it's it's a story uh, about being uh, someone in a position of power and also the World YWCA and our efforts for Goal 2035 and walking our talk. So we, um, uh, with the YWCA, one of our um, secret recipes that has been the case for more than 100 years is letting, um, is the work that uh, leaders are doing on the ground inform our advocacy approach. And um, so addressing not only in reaction um, to the realities that girls, young women and women are, um, the realities they experience, but also then addressing the institutional and systemic and so on, all the big, big power structures that per continue to perpetrate that. So uh, we really wanted to walk our talk in terms of ensuring that the work that we were doing, the efforts that we were doing uh, regionally and globally, and then ultimately locally, reflected um, the needs and the realities uh, of, of, young, of young women, of, of these leaders, and that we weren't doing what many um, CSOs and NGOs do, um, sometimes intentionally, but often very unconsciously, which is having, uh, you know, sitting in a room deciding what needs to be done and making it so, and then often using data to, to backing data into that, right? So creating the narrative, deciding what it is from inception. So we, uh, we have created now, a, a, we call it our feminist consultation methodology because it is uh, their feminist and human rights-based approach throughout all of it. But this consultation methodology, like from the get-go, from the design, right after the basic scope of what we wanted to do, um, included uh, and, and actually was led by young women and a third party. And we told the third party, it's you and the young women to create a methodology that's scientifically sound, um, is imbued with these feminist principles um, and then can be used in order that when we collect data about an issue or a problem or an opportunity that it is actually has been collected uh, in accordance with this consultation methodology and has legitimacy and authenticity that it wouldn't otherwise have, and that also in the way that it's used and the intention and the way that that information is shared, that the methodology goes to that point and sets some expectations for 
um, not doing those things which we do so often as uh, in that really equal corruption in our values or our approaches to trying to affect change for good. So the little bit about that really quickly is it was really uncomfortable at one point for me. You know, I was all for it, all in it. And the first big piece came back and I was like, this isn't what we wanted. And then I was like, who's we? Hmm. I'm talking about myself. This isn't what I was expecting. If I had come up with this plan in a room, this is not what it would have been. And it took some adjustment to be like, okay, and to really embrace it and walk my own talk for this consultation methodology and the direction it went when I, you know, the, the World YWCA gave up control. <laughs> what a great story. I love that. Shannon, are you going? Yes, I'm happy to hop in. And I think um, I'll share a little bit about something that's ongoing right now for Peace Direct, which is we are really taking some time to assess what it means for us to be locally led. I think we, you know, we have partners around the world and we bring them into multiple opportunities throughout the year to speak with them. And, you know, I have colleagues who are in closer contact with them than I have the privilege of being. And yet, as we're in the process of developing our US programming and trying to build relationships here in the United States as well, we are recognizing that there are many ways in which we are not yet adept at building these relationships with local communities at centering these new power actors. And I think specifically, I'll speak about some of the challenges that we've been having engaging with young people in the United States who are committed to um, a lot of peace building efforts in the United States. And I will clarify, peace building in the US doesn't always quite resonate. A lot of people will use other terminology, but we consider it to be within the scope of activities that we um, would otherwise classify as peace building. So really, I think as an organization, we're in the process of thinking, what does it mean to work with those most affected in this country and in all places? And here we're thinking about young people, we're thinking about incarcerated people, and we are thinking about a lot of people of color, notably black people in the United States. And I am a black woman, but many of my colleagues and as an organization, we are having to grapple with the fact that we have been based in the United States for some time now and have not been active in the United States until recently. And so when we are reaching out to organizations, especially um, you know, reaching out to more informal organizations run by young people, we are having to explain ourselves. And I have to say like that is really difficult. I think as a peace building organization, we've worked internationally. We perceive ourselves as holding a degree of legitimacy. And it's true. We have, we, you know, the UN does view us as legitimate. Um, our peer INGOs view us as legitimate. What does it say that a small group of teenagers or young adults do not view us as legitimate? And I think because of who we are as an organization, their lack of, of, of trust in us to me says more than any confidence that any large institution has in us. And so we're really trying to figure out how to build these relationships and how to recognize that while we may have done a great job overseas in really creating this dynamic where we are really in relationship with our, our partners, we haven't done that here. 
And so how can we humble ourselves and really enter spaces and begin to ask the question, what do you need from us? What would you like from us? And um, where have we failed you? So I wanted to, to hop in early on because I think unlike Casey, we're still figuring out what that looks like. But um, I think we're, we're getting a lot further than when we started. And I'm quite proud of us because it isn't easy to say as an organization, we haven't always lived up to our ideals and we are making some necessary shifts. If I have to, that, that was good, um, Sean and, and Casey. Um, I think both of you had some very, very inspiring case studies to give. And uh, for me, I would say that um, as a member of the Family Alliance, four members from Asia, we came together. We work on issues of child sexual abuse. And we realized that, uh, that most of the debate and discourse internationally for the past 20, 25 years, it has been seen or focused from a gendered lens. So it's always about girls being sexually abused. And uh, somewhere along the boys being sexually abused became very invisible. Whereas in our work, we work with them and yes, the boys are getting sexually abused. So we decided that um, maybe it is important for us to do an empirical research because everybody needs an empirical evidence, even though it's there, but you really need to do that. So the, the four of us in the Alliance, um, along with the support of, um, of researchers, we came on board and we did an empirical research in four countries, Philippines, Cambodia, Nepal, and India. And, and this research, keeping all the child safeguarding um, issues, doing research ethically, we did empirical studies. We actually interviewed boys. And it was, it was such a rich data that, that, we, that we got, which re-emphasized that what a patriarchal society does to boys because it's not only that they get sexually abused, but their notions of sexuality and masculinity is based on that. So the boys are socialized to believe that they have to be brave and courageous and strong. And, um, and you have to be a household provider, you know. And therefore, when these boys got sexually abused, and as all of us know, most of the perpetrators are known people who abuse you. So they were abused. But these, these boys did not have the courage. They were ashamed. They had, they had um, guilt feelings. They, did, they found it very difficult to speak about it to their own family and to reach out to their friends or anybody else. But those who did read, uh, speak to their families, the families first negated it. They couldn't believe it. They said, you as a boy got sexually abused? Of course not. So aren't you not? I mean, how could you do that? How could that happen to you? You know? So, and, 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 and from there, uh, with this study, we were able to have, uh, have further studies within the Alliance. Now there are eight countries that are, uh, a global study actually on sexual abuse of boys but that 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 gave us the the reasoning that yes this is an issue that we need to table in um, uh, nationally and internationally so 
some of our members taking this this research, this data, this evidence have negotiated with their national governments to say that your laws related to sexual violence has to be amended to make it gender neutral. And that there has to be services for boys who are being sexually abused, which is not there right now. So you need to have that. We also realized that it was so important to have run a campaign on this. And, and therefore we put our heads together and collectively we came up with a campaign which is called the Blue Umbrella Day. And it is on April 16th and we hope to have it every year. And I hope all those who are listening will, will join us next year on April 16th to have this campaign on Blue Umbrella Day. We have a lot of materials on it, but it's not, it is, it is very much national culturally specific, but also for others, I mean, it's international too in its messaging because um, this is a universal issue. And the Blue Umbrella Day, what, uh, if I can say about in, in, in India, um, in Delhi, the kids were in the forefront of the campaign. They were so excited. So we took an old Bollywood song and made, put our own lyrics on it. And the lyrics was all about boys and, and you know, care for boys and protecting boys and girls for that matter. And the kids did flash mob dances, you know, suddenly in a marketplace or in that near the bus station or something. And it caught the curiosity and interest of a whole lot of people. And everybody was then wanting to know. And in the social media, actually, it really, I mean, we, we got a lot of traffic in our social media globally on this whole campaign, the Blue Umbrella Day. And I think this is something that as an alliance, we were able to bring it and, and say that, look, child sexual abuse happens to both girls and boys. And we need to, we need to be focusing on boys too. The other is we also need to be looking at our parenting and some of the social norms that exist in our society which is harmful and that needs to be discussed and hopefully discarded at some point because the boys have to be also protected and cared for just as girls have. Because one thing that the, the boy said, I mean, it was so poignant. He said, you know, I have the freedom, but what freedom is that? It's a freedom that, that if I get hurt, I'm not, I'm seen as a weak person because I'm not brave, I'm not courageous. So what is this freedom that one is talking about? You know, so, so the, he says, whereas everybody else cares for the girls, you know, if they get hurt, it's, it's understood. People are sensitive, but not when it happens to me, a boy. And therefore, I think that this, this particular campaign of the Blue Umbrella Day and, and talking about child sexual abuse from a more, I would say, uh, from the lens that both girls and boys get sexually abused. And that needs to be addressed through policy legislations, programs, and budgeting is something that we are campaigning on and advocating on because we have the empirical evidence for us. And it, it was, it was, uh, 
I think at, at different points, it was kind of poignant, but at the same time, the bravery of the boys to share their stories to us. It's not easy, but they were able to share those stories with us. And, um, and, and that's what has, I, I think, the richness. And, and if you look at it in Cambodia, Nepal, um, in, in, in India, Philippines, or in South Africa, in Zimbabwe, in Guyana, um, in, uh, in uh, Paraguay, if you look at all these countries where the studies are happening, most of it resonates, you know, and therefore we can and uh, come together to advocate for um, looking at child sexual abuse in a more, um, in, 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 a, in I would say that both boys and girls get sexually abused and should not be seen only from a very gendered lens. And there has to be a policy shift. There has to be a legislation that is gender neutral and a lot of services for children on this. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rita. And, and it, it, you kind of tied it all together because we have kind of a lot of themes from those anecdotes emerging around sort of our own um, humility and need for inquiring amongst ourselves and challenging yes. assumptions in our work. Because um, sometimes what we come in thinking and with best intentions is not kind of what the community needs or, yes. or even, you know, um, the, the, the output is very different than what we initially expect it to be. And I, I find this really interesting because I had a colleague who went to a, a, a brands conference and there were some um, young people there and they basically were saying, you know, we don't, we don't trust you companies. Like we, we, there are no companies that we trust, even the, the best ones. And so kind of hearing that and having um, to, to, to face that like, oh, we don't. We aren't trusted, even though we think we're doing um, all of these things. And and how? What what do we need to um, learn? And how do we grow? I want to hand it over to the audience. Um, um, Wolfgang's question was, uh, who needs to drive these changes? Is this something that happens at the CEO level, local communities, or disruptors? And kind of uh, piggybacking on that, I will add, what are those difficult conversations that? that um, those who are driving it kind of need to have? I think um, this is something that I know we are talking about a lot at Peace Direct. And where I've landed is the need for both a top-down and bottom-up approach, by which I mean you need leadership to be committed as well, because it is really, really difficult for organizations to make necessary changes unless they have buy-in. And so that's why I think I feel really lucky at Peace Direct. We do have buy-in by our board and our CEO. And also I'm a junior staff member. And so I have to push the boundary and really push my CEO, push my colleagues to continue the conversation. And similarly, I have colleagues who are holding me to account and we have to challenge each other. So it needs to be bottom up, top, bottom up, top down on everybody. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm so I was informed that we only have two minutes left. So I guess I will say that uh, we, or we have seven minutes left. Um, so I want Casey and Rita to be able to respond as well, but I also just wanna say this, this session was cut a little bit short. So if anyone has questions or wants to connect with panelists, 
I will let the two of them kind of make wrap up statements, um, but please reach out directly to the panelists. Uh, I'm sure everybody in this group would love to be contacted and, and to speak more. So um, Rita and, and Casey, yeah. I'll leave it to you to close up. Yeah, uh, see, it, it is um, when we speak about how do we change the, the, the power dynamics, uh, there's no doubt that uh, it will have to be um, the grassroots local NGOs that are working directly with the communities and, and it is, they know what the social realities are. And it is that knowledge, that social realities that should be used in your, in your dialogue uh, with, with, the, with, the, with the powerful um, Northern region aid agencies, and and there's no doubt about that, you know. And 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 just to say that, you know, Alicia, the the international power uh, agencies, where do they get their 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 uh, data? It's from us. It's our empirical evidences. Where do they get the the kind of you know the work that we do and we transform society? It is us. It's this knowledge that is taken and amplified by them. So you have to have a paradigm shift here and let us be the ones who do the, the talking and discussing. <laughs> yes, 100%. So uh, I, I think that's a, a, the answer to a really big question is really big, um, but I, I wanna build then instead of going down a rabbit hole, I can't finish. Um, I'd, I'd like to build on what Shannon said. And that's about this idea that, that there's, um, you know, um, up and down and sideways and transverse and winding around. And I think that's um, regardless of whether it's um, the, the most grassroots driven um, organization in, in um, a, a small um, village or, uh, the largest CS, international CSO, the giant secretariat that's bigger than, than we can wrap our brains around. I think that we're so hardwired as humans um, to, to, to follow order, to follow a linear path. Um, and that, uh, you know, if I could wave a wand, it would be rewiring all of our brains, whether we're in community, um, really doing our activism or at a secretariat, a giant INGO secretariat, which is really dismantling the way we do things, the way we think. And that's really pie in the sky. And I think there's a ton to do in between there. But the first step in that direction is dismantling whatever formal power structure exists, whether it's who gets called the leadership team, who gets called the, the, the activists that are most effective, like according to who, like who says that group is more effective in that community than the other. The very first piece is to intentionally break apart any formal structure or thinking. And I think a lot follows after that that's very positive. Um, thank you, Casey. And yes, I will, I mean, there's so much more to follow up on here. I wish we had the time to dig into it. Um, I'll add from kind of my, my perspective as a futurist is that, you know, one of the most heartening things is that I, we, we are living in a moment in time in which people are really kind of vocally questioning those um, uh, established power structures. And so it's, it's really great to kind of see that dialogue taking place. I know in my own field, the conversation around uh, decolonizing or indigenizing the future um, is very live and, and active and people are really kind of trying to, to grapple with it. 
And I think also understanding that like we as practitioners are not going to solve this. Like we have to, we have to experiment and try and try again and iterate because we're not going to suddenly like, you know, snap our fingers and design the perfect program or, or most inclusive thing. And, and we have to be okay with that, with that failure and learning process as well. Thank you again to our panelists. Thank you so much. I don't know if you have like one word that you want to say, we have two minutes left, so I'll leave it to you. This is the last that I will say. Thank you very much for, for having us. And I think what the three of us are saying, I hope that resonates everywhere because democratic participation is where the people are and that's what we should be working for. Thank you. All right, thanks everybody. You can find links to more information and resources on this topic in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you.